0: And mental illness is real the largest mental institution on the planet earth is los angeles county jail and so how do we stand in awe at what people have to carry rather than in judgment at how they carry it
1: welcome to the out of hours podcast the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofours.org, a community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. There are barriers that stop us from starting sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast, we have Gregory Boyle, known to many as Father Gregory or G. Gregory is the founder of Homeboy Industries, the largest gang rehabilitation program on the planet. It all started when Gregory became pastor of Dolores Mission Church in 1986. Dolores was home to the highest gang population, not just in LA, but in the whole of America, and in 1988, having buried one too many of his parish members to gang violence, he and his community members set about finding some solutions. In the wake of the 1992 LA riots, he started a small project called Jobs for a Future, a way of helping rival gang members find employment, as he believes that nothing stops a bullet like a job. The success of this project led to even more job training initiatives such as Homeboy Silkscreen, Homeboy Merchandise, Homeboy Diner, Homeboy Farmers Market, and Home Girl Cafe. Homeboy Industries is now the largest and most successful gang rehabilitation and reentry program in the world, offering a new path for those stuck in violence and imprisonment. He famously looks to serve those who want help not those who need help, through initiatives like tattoo removal, therapy, work readiness, legal assistance, and job training in one of their many businesses. He's also written two books, including a New York Times bestseller, Tattoos on the Heart, receiving high acclaim even from celebrities such as Martin Sheen, Elizabeth Gilbert, and renowned meditation teacher Jack Kornfield. We talked about how to maintain compassion over judgment, what he thinks causes police brutality, and why you shouldn't focus on what impact you're going to have on the world, but rather the impact the world is going to have on you.
0: I was a pastor, and I was pastor for six years, from 88 to 92. parish that was very poor, that had eight gangs in in two housing projects, like uh, estates, you would call them. And so very poor, very poor. And it had the highest concentration of gang activity in the world was my parish. And so I was burying kids. And then we started a school was the first thing we did. And then the gang members would say who went to the school, if only we had jobs. So then we started jobs for our future. Then afterwards, I went on to just continue full time with gang intervention work. So now Homeboy is the largest gang intervention rehab reentry program on the planet. 15,000 folks a year walk through our doors. Kind of all roads lead to it. Everybody, Every gang member knows who we are, where we are, and what we do. But that grew over 32 years.
1: So the school, was that part of your job as a pastor, or was it a separate yeah, kind of project? Yeah,
0: I never saw my job as just doing services. I saw the boundaries of my parish as my job. So when I started to bury young people killed because of gang violence in 1988, you know, and then it was rapid from 88 to 98. I just, I had so many kids that were killed. So I just, we started to do things as a community, you know, how, how do we respond mm-hmm. rather than just bury these kids? How do we help them? That was the idea, you know, so we had a school across the street, you know, our our parochial school. So we just took over the convent, which was on the third floor, and that became a school for gang members. You know, 1988 was, you know, we we still say Homeboy Industries is 32 years old, and it started in that moment. So we tried to find employers willing to hire gang members, And, and then we couldn't find enough so we started these kind of projects you know like uh, maintenance crew and landscaping crew and crew to build our child care center and then we started the bakery called it and we called it homeboy bakery and then we had a tortilla factory
1: how did it feel leaving the parish
0: i left because six years was sort of the term and i'm a jesuit so after 10 years as a priest You take a break and you go back and you make the long, silent retreat. And you do all these things. It's kind of a year of retooling and spirituality. So I was due for that moment. I was kind of burned out on the parish part, you know. And I had already kind of inhabited another vocation, which was working with gang members.
1: And you did a lot of work, I think, before you were at the parish with Folsom Prison and some prisons in Mexico.
0: I was at Folsom Prison. I was in Prison Island in Mexico. And prior to that, I was in Bolivia.
1: Is that standard work within your (laughs) vocation?
0: Well, I wanted to work with the poor always. And then uh, I spoke Spanish. So that kind of guided me a little bit. Once we started to have social enterprises, We thought it was a better name, Homeboy Industries.
1: Where did the name come from?
0: So that was during the unrest. The National Guard didn't need to go to the poorest location in the city because I think, because I told the LA Times they asked me, I said, well, we did have 60 strategically hired rival enemy gang members. So then that appeared in the newspaper, and Ray Stark, who was a movie producer, who had $500 million, called me to his office. So he kind of liked this notion. And he said, what should I do with my money? And I said, well, you could buy this abandoned bakery across the street from our elementary school. I don't know, we'll call it Homeboy Bakery. It was literally right then on the spot. I just said the name. In those days, you know, you it would never have occurred to anybody, to call it homeboy slash homegirl because it was a guy thing. It still is. I mean, it's 95% of all gang members are male. But you live in a certain period where you just, it's too, so we started Homegirl Cafe. The difficulty is there aren't enough female gang members to, to work there. So that's when we shifted. All the guys who work at Homeboy have to be a gang member. But the women, some are and some aren't, but they are all felons.
1: 30 years later, people understand what Homeboy Industries is. You've got celebrity fans, you know, it's something that's quite accepted. When you look back 30 years ago, I imagine it wasn't as sort of neat and tidy as that. You didn't have a name, you didn't have a kind of wrapping of it.
0: In the early days, you know, it's hard to to uh, retrieve it, but, you know, mm. there was great hostility towards Homeboy. Death threats, bomb threats, hate mail. So a lot of times people look at Homeboy now and think that we arrived full grown. But no, I and mean, it was, people had so demonized the gang population, it was a short hop to demonize, you know, the priest who was helping them. The hate mail was never from gang members because... They always loved and knew who we were and we were a sign of hope. But I I look, you know, especially with all the police stuff that's happening right now, all the anonymous hate mail was really from law enforcement, from police. We hate you, you're part of the problem. That kind of thing. But now, you know, we're we're thirty-two years in and it's hard to really retrieve that hostility. But that was really what it was like in the early days.
1: You might think, it, if, if you didn't know much about gangs, that actually it would be a threat because you're actually taking people away from the gangs.
0: Yeah, people always, that's one of the myths, you know, that uh, we hate you because you're taking our soldiers away. Except for the fact that, you know, every gang member wants what the folks at Homeboy have, which is the reason to get up in the morning and a reason not to gangbang the night before. So they they want their moms to be proud of them, you know, and they, they want all the things that human beings want. But there's the myth that, you know, it's bad guys not wanting their troops to have a life. But because that's a demonizing notion, demonizing is always untruth, and it's the opposite of who we're called to be as people.
1: And what were law enforcement taking issue with?
0: Well, again, you know, if the gang member was the enemy, and and the task was to sort of wipe them out, then you were then they saw me as aiding and abetting. It was kind of crazy. You know, the implication in your question is that boy, what could they not see? This is obviously smart on crime. Do something like this. But they never saw it that way. They always saw it as uh aiding and abetting or some kind of weird thing. I never really fully understood it, but that's the perils of of demonizing you know that it eliminates sort of the human factor, and you're never able to get underneath stuff to kind of understand that violence is a language and and we need to figure out what language is this speaking
1: looking at the law enforcement then so they just they were almost trained to see things as good and bad versus looking at the causes of the causes
0: absolutely and and i would maintain that to this day that's almost a more sophisticated level of diagnosis than even race you know because no police officer is trained to be a racist Every police officer is trained to get the bad guy. And as long as you think there's an actual thing as a bad guy, we're in trouble. So they don't see that. You know, there aren't bad guys. There are traumatized people. There are mentally ill people. they are somebody on, on PCP and out of his mind. There's damaged, wounded people in pain, suicidal people. But there are no bad guys, and so no amount of implicit bias training is going to get a police force to that point where they go, "Oh no, people have Buddha nature. People have unshakable goodness." But they're having a bad day, or they're having mental illness, which is real, and and they belong to us.
1: I read that Homeboy Bakery started just after the nineteen ninety two riots in los angeles that's right and i and i was curious i i was reading about it again today and it it's just so striking how similar the situation is today and how little has changed in 30 years do you think as someone who's in the states do you think that's true or do you think there has been changes
0: oh yeah i mean definitely i mean especially we're the gang capital of the world and and in those early days police officers would take a gang member and and beat him down in, in the factories behind the projects for purposes of interrogation and intimidation. Or they'd plant evidence, or they would drop a gang member in a uh, enemy territory and drive away. All those things, you know, um, there was the Rampart scandal, all these kind of things that happened that would never happen Today, they just wouldn't happen today because progress has been made, actually. But. um, But, you know, police reform, I don't think they go deep enough, you know, it's very superficial and they don't get at the, the cultural piece that is most problematic is the one that they don't address, which is how do you see people? And does everyone belong to us? So Compton is quite famous. And I remember a police officer said to me, you know, 90% of the people who live in Compton are actually good people. Now, he thought that was a generous, spacious statement. But what he doesn't know is you can draw a straight line from that statement to excessive use of force, to the murder of George Floyd, to wrongful deaths to coloring outside the lines. You can draw an exactly straight line from that statement to that because it still says 10% of the people are bad people. First of all, that's the least sophisticated take on the human person. And it will always lead you to trouble and always has. But that's the thing they don't address So in Minneapolis, in the last five years, 44 people had a knee placed on their neck and were rendered unconscious. 44 people in five years. So obviously, this was part of the practice. Three-fifths of them were African American, and the rest were white and, and Latino but the common denominator was bad guy and when it, and if you think there's such a thing as bad guys well then all bets are off anything goes it's only a bad guy who cares if i put my knee on his neck and that's a common denominator so that's part of the police culture that every police force has and they've never addressed it so they they kind of do window dressing and they do they try to have racial sensitivities sessions, but it, it doesn't reach deep enough to kind of address the whole culture.
1: If you believe that there are such things as good and bad people, then you, you have cognitive shortcuts. And I suppose that's the thing that people are, you know, getting angry about, which is that there are cognitive shortcuts and differences in the way that you treat people based on your assumption of whether that person's a bad or a good guy, you know, with limited evidence. Do you think there is a difference between the, those kind of cognitive shortcuts that people are making based on race?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good, uh, I'm going to use it, the cognitive shortcut. Because what it establishes somebody as a bad guy, if you in any way resist, if you run, if you talk back, all these are cognitive shortcuts that, that tell them, oh, we're, we're dealing with a bad guy. Now, people would say that even if when people go like this or put their hands on the wheel, an African-American, that there's, you know, a cognitive shortcut there. And that's that may well be true. We have over-policed poor communities of color. And that's what they've been designed to do since the beginning, is to basically over-police poor communities of color. I mean, where I grew up in Los Angeles, we didn't have that. And if you had to call a police officer, you were relieved when they showed up. You know, they got the cat out of the tree. That experience for me was completely different once I went to Boyle Heights and watched what was happening. And I was so naive. I wasn't naive ever about gang members. I was always naive about police. And I would go to the police and to the captain and I'd say, Gosh, I think you should know this is happening. Your officers are beating people down. And, and then they shot the messenger. And I went, whoa. They didn't want to hear this at all.
1: Because so, they'd have to deal with it.
0: Well, because they were in denial about it. And then again, there was also that thing. That's what demonizing means. It's they're only gang members. What's your, what's your complaint?
1: You have had a thirty plus career in understanding people who are not similar to you. They've had different upbringings, different backgrounds. What have you found works for you to connect with people?
0: On the one hand, you know, you know, remove religiosity or spirituality from us and just just insert science. So there's, there's the ACEs study, you know, which is the Adverse Childhood Experiences. And there's a checklist of 10 things. You know, parents are locked up uh, for children that they're exposed to these things. Parents are drug addicts. There was emotional, sexual, physical abuse, neglect. 10 things. And experts say that if a child has four or five on that checklist, that kid is going to have real health problems and real socializing problems. So I'm a zero on that checklist. And every man and woman who walks through our doors is a nine or a 10, which is astounding. They're not four or fives. They're nine or 10, when you have people who have endured and had to carry a nine or 10 on the ACEs study, it's extraordinary. And so how do we stand in awe at what people have to carry rather than in judgment at how they carry it? Gang membership and violence was always, and I knew this, I discovered this fast, It was the lethal absence of hope. And so gang violence was really how kids in my community lived out their own suicidal urges. It was about suicide. Now, you know, I've buried, tomorrow I'm going to bury my 234th person killed for no reason at all. And this guy was, his name was David. And he worked for us some time ago, and he was beaten to death and then shot in the head, left dead in a park. So, But I knew early on that the high-risk behavior or walking into an enemy's territory, they weren't walking in there to kill somebody. They were hoping to die. It was how their despair was, was living out. That became an easy enough thing to see. That these kids, teenagers, and young adults—they had to carry more than I ever had to carry. So it was easy to stand in awe at that. But how do you get to a place where society says we belong to each other, and we forget that at our own peril? And how do you get, you know, law enforcement to be in a, a place where they can say, "Yeah." You know, everyone we encounter is having the worst day of their life. And mental illness is real. The largest mental institution on the planet Earth is Los Angeles County Jail. So that tells you how poorly we're addressing things when that's a fact.
1: Would you defund the police and put the money into mental health services?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, no, I got into trouble because I was saying this about defunding police, and I think, again, defunding police doesn't demonize police, and it doesn't say eliminate police. Mm-hmm. But it says refashion how you see this. Reimagine it. Budget for Los Santos, 54% of it goes to police. That's crazy. And it's also not very sophisticated about the origins of crime. But what is crime about? If you use part of that to invest in hope, watch what happens. If you had as much money allocated for rehabs, for drug rehabs, that than you do for enforcement, watch what happens. Budgets are moral documents. So you want to say, is this reflective of how we want to put things recognizably first in our city? I would say no. But that's part of the push is to defund police.
1: It's also crazy the amount of money spent on sentencing. It's not just the cost of the police. It's like when it gets to the courts, how much that costs.
0: Perforation, how much that costs. Mm -hmm. You know, the bright spot is every issue is a partisan issue. And there's division everywhere, except on this issue, which is kind of interesting. In the United States, you know, both Republican and Democrats, they want to depopulate prisons and actually... Both sides want to address mass incarceration. They, you know, they do it very peaceful and, and very tiny steps. But it is the only issue that enjoys bipartisan, you know, support, which is very odd because, you know, I grew up in a, in a tough on crime atmosphere. And the worst thing you could say about your opponent was that he was soft on crime. The emergence of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles offered a third take. It said, no, this is smart on crime. So if your choice is tough or soft, everybody's going to choose tough. But if your choice is tough or smart, everybody's going to choose smart because they'd rather see themselves as smart. That's what worked a little bit in our city. People saw us as a viable Alternative.
1: And I guess with gangs, one of the reasons that they're kind of pervasive, which is they kind of give you, you know, a sense of self.
0: But see, that's a myth too, that a kid joins a gang because he wants to belong. Well, you know, people join the Boy Scouts or you know, baseball team or something because they want to belong, which is a very good thing. But no kid is seeking anything when he joins a gang. He's fleeing, only fleeing something, and and there are no exceptions to that. But sometimes you know we'll ask gang members or on TV or in an interview, why would you join a gang, and they'll say because I wanted to belong and wine women and song and join a gang and see the world and all that kind of stuff, and that's just because they're strangers to themselves because they can't say. Yeah, I joined a gang because my mom used to put cigarettes out on me and hold my head in the toilet and flush till I nearly drowned. That's why I joined a gang. Now, is that always true in every case? Yes, always true in every case. So kids join gangs if they're despondent, traumatized, and or mentally ill. One or two or th- all three of those. That's the profile of a kid who joins a gang. It's not about belonging, but everybody thinks it is.
1: The reason I ask that is because I think fleeing and belonging are very linked things. Because if you're fleeing something, you're seeking something else, right? Well,
0: that's interesting. Yet, yeah, except that there's a dominance, the fleeing is the dominant thing. It's important to say that because if it's about attraction, if it's about you're being lured or drawn into a gang, then people will address the lure and the the pull factor. But if it's essentially predominantly Mm -hmm. push factor, then address what that kid is fleeing. Then Mm -hmm. you've addressed something significant. How do you infuse hope to a kid for whom hope is foreign or how do you help a kid heal so he can transform his pain so he doesn't have to inflict it anymore or how do you deliver mental health services in a timely and culturally appropriate way well you know, how
1: do you, do you
0: well yeah very <laughs> it's difficult it's complex diagnosis is is, is more than half the battle You know, the problem has always been our diagnosis is bad. And nobody's ever met a treatment plan that was ever born of a bad diagnosis. So gang violence, people want to address things head on. A university I went to when a synagogue, you know, in Pittsburgh, when somebody went in and killed a bunch of people there, they started a seminar called HATE. I don't know. That just feels very superficial to me because I don't think it was about hate. I think it was about mental illness. But we get self-congratulatory. We want to say we are addressing head-on hate, racism, gang violence. I I lived through that. But gang violence is about something else. Everything is about something else. So the trick is to find the something else. So I mean I I'm just thinking about this right now. I mean that that's kind of you know we we presume that what happened in Minneapolis was about race. But what if it's about something else? I mean it's probably both. And my my point is, if you think you're addressing something, chances are there's something else. And and like the homies always say, you know go underneath. And find the thorn. It's a way of saying, find the thing that's causing the pain. And what is this about? And what language, like what language was it speaking? I mean, so don't talk about race. Talk about hate. We're going to address hate. And we're going to wipe out anti-Semitism, for example. Nobody has ever met a healthy anti-Semite. Nobody has ever met a healthy racist or a healthy white supremacist. The, diff- the problem is is it, it's all about striking high moral distance. And the goal, I would say God's dream come true, is kinship. There is no us and them. Everybody belongs to us. So there was a campaign here in uh, Los Angeles uh, sponsored by the Department of Mental Health and big billboards, and on buses, and everywhere, and it said, none of us are well, until all of us are well. It was brilliant. It was exactly right. It was mystical, because it saw the whole person. You know, we had the famous, in Charlottesville, all these white men carrying tiki torches, and my assertion would be, not a single one of them was mentally healthy. And you would go, well, how do you know that? Because mentally healthy people aren't going to be carrying a tiki torch at such a thing. They just aren't. I had a therapist say to me, by the way, racism is not a mental health issue. And I go, well, what else would it be? What else would it be? Otherwise, you're forced to say bad people doing bad things. And I can't pronounce that. Because it's too unsophisticated. Mm. So people want me to hate Donald Trump. I think he's absolutely, with clarity, he's mentally ill. He's a malignant narcissist and a sociopath. No one chooses to be mentally ill. It chooses you and, and however complex that happens. And consequently, he, he can't think about the country or anybody other than himself And consequently, because he's a sociopath, he can't feel for anyone, not not the family of George Floyd, not the 100,000 people who've died because of coronavirus. So, And I can't imagine the anguish it must be to be him. Now, I have compassion because he's mentally ill, and he's absolutely unfit to be president. Both are true. But I don't have to demonize him. I don't demonize anybody. But I think it would help us as a society if we were to say none of us are well until all of us are well. And then it's about caring for people rather than punishing the wounded.
1: How do you build compassion? So I've obviously been reading both of your books, and I love the concept of radical kinship. The way you describe it is incredibly logical, actually. But I think there's always that junction between reading something and understanding it and acting on it. And what what do you think bridges that?
0: I think if you say logically, you know, there's certain things that you have to be aware of and attentive to that demonizing is always wrong. And the minute you know that it's always untruthful, you will catch yourself. You you can't say, but I'm going to make an exception in Donald Trump's case. No, you have to either say that one's always wrong and then you're freed. And if you make another assumption that everybody is unshakably good and that things limit our access to knowing that we are resoundingly good people so it can be trauma it can be pain it can be grief it can be mental illness these are all things that impede you coming to know the truth of who you are and that's kind of the thing at homeboy you know it's not our goal is not surviving as the fittest but thriving as the nurtured And once they know they're nurtured, I mean, if if it's true, which I believe it is, the traumatized will cause trauma, and the damaged will cause damage. But it's equally true that the cherished will find their way to the joy there is in cherishing. So there are kind of principles that you kind of say, yeah, this this is a principle I'm gonna I'm gonna Mm -hmm. cling to. You know, and that helps me. And and the thing with with compassion is it's all about vicinity. You have to put yourself in the vicinity of people. And so, you know, there are people at a distance will look at gang members or whatever. I mean, how do you have compassion for people who are looting? How do you have compassion for the police officers engaged in this horrific crime? And it's the highest form of our civilization is to be able to muster up compassion for that person. That's hard to do. I'm not going to say that's easy, but you have to challenge yourself and catch yourself. And and you do it all the time. I do it all the time. You know, you know, you, you want to work with homies at homeboy industries who are pleasant and and uh, you know, and kind, and funny, and but no, you don't get it. You don't get to do that. You're going to deal with belligerent, hard-headed, knuckleheads. But as long as you can kind of catch yourself, so judgment is the opposite of awe, and awe is where you need to be anchored. It must be hard to carry what you're carrying.
1: And when you. Dealing with so many people who are vulnerable or who are carrying you know, a lot of pain and a lot of trauma, how do you deal with that responsibility? Because I think for most people, that actually stops them from doing some of the greatest things that they're capable of because they think, oh, I don't know if I can be responsible for that. And maybe I'm not the right person for that. How do you navigate those feelings?
0: You know, a lot of people want to fix, save, rescue which is a bad inclination. If you're going to the margins to make a difference, then it's about you. And it can't be about you. But if you go to the margins so that the folks at the margins make you different, well, then then, now it's about us and and each other's goodness. You know, that's, that's where you kind of, that's where you inhabit it. I don't go to the margins to bestow nobility on folks at the margins. But we inhabit it
1: I suppose by responsibility, I mean I've seen that you get hundreds of texts a day, for example, you know, asking for pieces of information or maybe asking for more serious help. And I guess when you put yourself in a position as someone who's helping, even if you're not putting yourself in a position of superiority, there's some level of responsibility you've created by being there for someone.
0: Part part of that is like being a parent. And you know, because like a parent, you're not going to go, oh, okay. You have to move people along with great love. But that's how parents are with their kids anyway. You know, there's a no matter what
1: But It's like you've got that kind of responsibility for how many people have gone through the program now?
0: So thousands and thousands and thousands. Not all of them have been in our 18-month paid program. But they come in for tattoo removal therapy and group.
1: I've seen that different organizations have come and modeled their programs on yours.
0: Oh yeah. So that's what we call the global homeboy network. And so when we probably, I don't know, 2008 we started being invited to, um, you know, airlift homeboy into other cities and we thought, do we want to franchise? And we decided not to. So we, so they say, "Well, we'll help you come and hang out and steal any kind of concept, and then we'll help you start it in Glasgow, or I was just on a zoom with Glasgow, so you know, so we have one hundred and forty seven programs in the United States, and
1: And you've never been tempted to codify it and control it. I guess it's a much more generous way of looking yeah, at it.
0: Yeah, because the first time Wichita Kansas wanted us to do it. And that's when we had to sit down and say, Do we want to do that? If, if we did that, then gang members in Wichita would, would go, Well, what does what Homeboy Industries and Los Angeles know about Wichita? And they mm. would be right. So that was a cafe. Everybody wanted to do food for how, how much I told them, don't do it. But they, so they started the Center Cafe, and it was, uh, And I think they ended up having two of them. And, you know, it was, again, hiring the same population. Then they would add case managers and therapy and classes, just like we do. So now, you know, we have the Global Homeboy Network, and, and normally in August we would gather. And, and all our partners come from all over the world. But I think, you know, they very much feel aligned to us. So they'll say that they're a partner in the Global Homeboy Network. The interesting thing is that uh, other kinds of social dilemma are coming our way. You know, so like a group from Detroit, I'm figuring it was about gangs and they said, no, we're, we want to use this kind of methodology to deal with the homeless issue. So mm-hmm. we're seeing that kind of thing. That's that's a change. That's different.
1: And do you have like a personal mission that you evaluate these opportunities along? So you say, this is the kind of impact that I want to leave on the world. No, I
0: never, I never think in terms of that, but it's also like, you know, I don't want to have to worry. I wonder how homeboy industries in Sydney, Australia is doing. What they do is their thing and I don't have to fundraise. And so there's that, but I never think about, uh, I remember I once went to a school and I walked in and the teacher says, tell them how they can make their mark on the world. And I went, no, I'm not going to tell them that because I don't think they should try to make their mark on the world because then it's about them. Mm -hmm. And you want to kind of dispel that notion because it's not a healthy one. Keeps us from joy and it mistakes success for joy and boy are those two different things
1: what would you replace that with so if people aren't looking to make a mark on the world what should we be looking to do
0: to to have the world make its mark on you you know and and the odd thing about that is it feels passive but it isn't it's empowering that's how the margins erase not because you get your eraser out you stand there, you receive people, you allow yourself to be reached by people. And and that's kind of the key. You know, a, a guy said, how do I reach them? He was a gang member working with gang members. How, how do I reach them? And I said, for starters, stop trying to reach them. Can you be reached by them? Then suddenly you've turned something on its head. And, and that's what you want to do. You want to turn this on its head.
1: You've scaled Homeboy Industries into something huge. That phrase of having something done to you or being open to be influenced by the world around you can feel like it's a kind of passive state. You know, people criticize Buddhism for a similar thing. You know, which is, you know, how can you be proactive if you're constantly in the present? So, sort of that that tension. How do you navigate those two things? being open to things to be done to you and also, you know, having an impact in growing this organization? Do you think they just sit side by side?
0: Yeah, I think they do. I mean, I think it's a strategy and that's why people burn out. You know, people have their own ideation, you know, where they'll say, oh, I I just couldn't work with homeless anymore because I guess I'm just too compassionate. I go, no, you allowed it to become about you. I mean, I know this from experience. If you are anchored in the present moment, and you are delighting in the person right in front of you, and you are allowing yourself to be reached and have your heart altered by this homeless person, it's eternally replenishing. You'll never burn out. But what we do is, okay, we can see that burnout is a problem. Oh, I know, self-care. And I get it. You know, you should take care of yourself. But it's not about self-care. That's not the problem. The problem is you've allowed it to become about you. And you can't ever allow that to happen. You know, I I, I talked to a woman some time ago who, um, with great sadness, talked about how she had to stop working with refugees. And obviously, that's hard work. And then she kind of said plaintively, you know, she said, Well, there were some moments of joy. And then you discover she's not talking about joy at all. She's talking about moments of success where she accomplished something, where there were evidence-based outcomes, if you will. And I go, oh, no, that's not joy. That's success. And if you're seeking success, of course you're going to burn out. Or you're only going to work with the most likely to succeed, which is equally bad. Because then you abandon your original mission, which was to stand with people who no one else wants to stand with. Jesuits do this, you know, they go, we're going to teach the kids who no one else will teach, which is good and noble. And after the first year, you know, all the all the teachers are kind of like this, and they're just, they, they're shell-shocked and bruised. And, and the board says, how many of your kids went on to college? And they look at each other, and they go, well, Larry did. I think, didn't Larry go to college? You know, it's like that kind of thing. Mm. And the board goes, oh, only one went to college? Oh, okay. Well, cut to three years later, all those kids are going to college. And did they learn how to do something better? No, they stopped working with the kids no one else will work with. And Mm. slowly they changed. They morphed into, we're going to work with the kids most likely to succeed. So I see these schools, some of them are of ours, 100% go from high school to college. Well, of course, because you don't teach anyone who won't. If I have one job at Homeboy, is I don't want us to change who we're working with and who we accompany. Because you can do that. It's subtle. And it yeah. happens where suddenly you're working with a population you never set out to work with, just because it looks better. And you have better results. And that's tough in a funding world. The donors will always say we don't fund efforts; we fund outcomes. And I go, well, that's your loss because we're going to stand with the least likely to succeed.
1: But you could still quantify outcomes from the beginning and the end of the program. We still
0: do it, and people do mm-hmm. it, and, and and but part of you know my what I think is the most compelling reason for somebody to give homeboy industries money is because gang members go there my logic is gang members are very smart they will not go to a place that doesn't help them gang members wouldn't come if it didn't they just wouldn't do it Mm. and so but that's not enough for foundations so somebody Tabulates all the uh, that those kinds of stats, but not me because I'm not interested in it. Glad somebody does it at homeboy. Mother Teresa says we're not called to be successful; we're called to be faithful. So you want to be faithful, good and true and right and just. This is what I'm going to do. I won't be deterred. This is it.
1: Because that's one of the challenges, isn't it, of of kind of growing something? Is that you think. You'll start with a kind of manifesto or a philosophy and then something new will come along and maybe it will actually enhance the sort of initial idea of it. The
0: problem is you don't want to chase money and that's a problem. So, so here's $100,000, but you have to become a drug rehab center uh, and you go, uh, no, we, we don't want to change who we are. Or sometimes it's subtle. You know, we, we've had that happen a lot because there's a, the big, sexy thing is hardcore gang intervention workers, workers out in the streets. So now I did that in my early years. I don't regret that I did it. I'd never do it again, because I know the unintended consequences. it It supplies oxygen to gangs, and a whole series of reasons why I wouldn't do it. If I thought it was sensible. We'd be doing it. But every city in the United States funds this because they they they're superficial. You know, it's like let's address hate head on. Okay. I was gonna let, say let, yeah. let's address you know, and then again the then then the overlay becomes the Middle East.
1: It's the hero but, complex, isn't it?
0: But it's also the two sides. Mm. And it forgets that gang violence is about something else. So but if you think it's about You know, let's bring these two warring gangs together and have them negotiate. And what are your demands? We'd like our homeland back. We'd like to practice our religion freely. No. It's the language of despondent kids or the mentally ill or the traumatized. So why are we negotiating? So, you know, we kind of go, oh, I get it. Well, they must hate each other. It must be rational. I did that in the early days until I found out it was irrational. And law enforcement doesn't like irrational. They want to be able to say, you know, we know where this is going to hit next. They don't like random. Really good talking with you and best of luck. And come and visit us in LA sometime.
1: I would love to.
0: it'd be great to give you the grand tour. Hopefully we'll be touring and having people there. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks so much for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. To hear more about Out of Hours, sign up to our newsletter at outofhours.org. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving a review. It really helps.